This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Before Pastor Andrew brings us the sermon for today, may I invite our sister Sophia to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do, to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. All right, okay, you're not on Zoom. Great. Uh, it's always a joy, privilege to be with God's people when His Word is open. So, if you have your Bible, whether it's on phone or physical, can I invite you to turn to First Peter three? First Peter three. With your Bible or your handphone, can I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter three? Let's begin by asking God to help us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is being spoken clearly and faithfully, that your sheep hear your voice. Father, we pray today that we can hear your voice as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Father, besides um, all the noises, the voices around the world, we pray, God, that you help us to actually hear your voice. We pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us at this point and draw us away from any distractions, but bring us right to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I was caught off guard when she started shouting at me. I didn't really know this lady. I barely knew her story. This elderly lady laying on a hospital bed across my grandmother's um, When I first arrived, I saw my dad was happily chatting with her. She was smiling from year to year, and I was just getting ready to warm the seat next to my grandmother. And then my dad, in his enthusiasm, said to her, Oh, hey, I want to introduce you. This is my son. He's a pastor. That was my dad's introduction of me to her, and the shouting was her greeting to me. Now, it turned out that this elderly lady had a really bad encounter with a Christian lady some time back. A professing Christian lady once befriended her, seemed to be a nice friend. However, this elderly lady claimed that her ulterior motive is really to convert her religion. And when she said no, that Christian lady said, you're going to hell and left. Well, that's her version. But so there I was, 
appeared at the right time for her to renew her anger. I wonder if you have ever faced a friend, a family, a colleague, even a stranger where you have to give an answer or a defense of your faith. Now, it may not be in the hospital, but it may perhaps be in school, in university, in the canteen, in the boardroom, in a pub, in a cafe, or just your usual lunch kakis. Are you ready to answer the question on faith, on hope, and on truth as a Christian? Now this morning, I would like to invite us to think about the topic of defending our Christian belief. And so today's verse begins this way. This is NIV. Let me read it to you. Verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, ESV translated slightly differently. And this is what it says. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the word answer in NIV is translated in many other versions, including ESV, as defense, to make a defense on the hope that you have. Now, the Greek word used here, I don't use very many Greek words. This is probably the only one you hear for a long time. The Greek word used here is actually apologia. Apologia, which is where you get the word apologetics. Okay, what is Christian apologetics? It does not mean apologize. When I was younger, I think, why do Christians have to keep apologizing for their faith? Like, apologize, apologize. No, it's not apologizing, saying sorry. It's apologetics, which really means a systematic and a careful defense of the Christian faith when confronted by critics. This is actually the command that we are given right here in 1 Peter 3, 15, to make a defense for the hope that is inside of us and to give a respectful answer even when other people is against us. So if you keep 1 Peter 3 open, we'll look at an overall look at the context of this passage, followed by um, digging into a practical consideration on this topic of answering or defending our Christian faith. Now, the question Christians need to always be ready to answer is this question. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Well, there are derivatives of the same question that can go something like, why do you believe what the Bible says? Why do you have this reason to hope after you die? What is it about Christianity that you still hold on to? All the um, derivatives of that, but really the question is, why are you a Christian? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter was speaking to Christians, telling them about discipleship and relationship within the culture that they were in. The way Christians live would be counter-cultural, Peter says. As Christians, they were not of the world because they belong to the kingdom of God, but yet they are still in the world because they are called to be sought and light and testimony for the good news of Jesus, for Jesus our King. So Christians, Peter says, are called to always be doing good in all circumstances. Now, thanks be to God, the common grace that God has placed in our world applies this way. Look at verse 13. This is why it says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, Peter is actually using a rhetorical question. You're not supposed to answer it. He says, 
who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Because the expected answer will be, well, not really. No one. And when you do good, you often get rewarded with gratitude, with some friendships, with goodwill. You find yourself on the same side of law. So the general grace is that who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And the answer should be, no one, really. But at the same time, Peter is well aware that we are living in a fallen world that has turned away from God. And he goes on in verse 14. He says this, Not every time you will get the reciprocity when you do good. People may not always do good to you. There will be times when you do what is right. In return, you get harmed, you get persecuted, you become the target of everyone else. So verse 14, Peter continued, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So here it is. The common grace in this world that God has given is, if you do what is right in your life, you should live a peaceful life. But because this is a fallen world, there will come a time where Christians may suffer for the, sake, for the very fact that we are doing what is right. But when that happens, Peter says, God knows and you are considered blessed by him. For you are actually on the same side as Christ because he himself suffered when he did good. So a few verses before today's passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is how Peter reminds us about Christ. This is what he says. 1 Peter 2, 22 to 25, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Now, when we suffer the most natural response will either be to retaliate or we become frightened. It's kind of a natural response when we suffer. But Peter says, no, no, no. Do not fear, but remember Christ. Do not fear, but remember Christ. Do not fear your accusers, honor Christ. So it is in this context that when Christians live in a countercultural life in this culture that we live, seeking to do good and still face persecution at times, that today's verse drive right in verse 15b that Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Now, Christians, as we seek to do what is good and live lives that may be counter-cultural, people who are watching us may ask us the question regarding our faith. Why are you a Christian? Why do you still believe? Why do you say what you say? On such occasion, we should be prepared to be active witness of Christ before unbelievers who ask questions regarding our Christian beliefs, our Christian teachings, our Christian living. Because at the end of the day, they all point to the Christian hope that we are holding on, that Christ is going to return for us. Whether it's a genuine question and allegation by someone, Peter says, regardless, the Christians should always be ready to explain, to give uh, an apologia, an apologetic, a defense 
of the Christian faith. We need to do some, of, some form of defending and explaining of our faith. Now, as we give uh, the defense, we should consider the approach to take. So Peter said in verse 15b that Christians are to present our defense in three ways, with three approach with, with gentleness and respect, verse 15, with clear conscience, verse 16, and also with a readiness to suffer. Whether we face adverse situation or curious conversation, the opportunity to give an answer or defense can come uh, in a very unexpected way. You could have someone laughing and mocking at you, and the next moment he asks, but why do you really believe it? So if you're someone who is always ready to give an answer, the opportunities are there and you catch them and you'll be able to respond to them. So this afternoon, we're going to take a look at how Apostle Paul thinks about the approach as he defends the gospel and consider how we too can approach our questioners similarly. So the first um, point that Peter brings to us, you can look at me so you don't look at the screen, uh, is this, that we should answer the question with gentleness and respect. Listen to how Paul approaches his accusers when, um, when they accuse him with such gentleness and respect. So imagine with me, Paul, Paul has um, been living in Jerusalem for a long time. He's gone out and now he's come back to Jerusalem, but he's being accused by the Jews. So as he faced the Jews, you know, he is so well-versed in arguments, but instead of going straight on to argue, he first respectfully acknowledged the accusers. He tried to find a common ground with them that we are all fearers of God and we all uh, have zeal for God. So listen to how, how Paul gives this gentleness and respect. I'm going to read to you from Acts 22 verse 1. He says this, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I started under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was as zealous for God as any of you are today. So he addresses them respectfully as brothers, as fathers. He spoke to them in Aramaic. He identified himself that I'm a Jew. I grew up in this city. This is my city. And I'm zealous for God, just like you are zealous for God. Now, Christian apologetics does not ultimately seek to win an argument. Christian apologetics ultimately seeks to win the person. And so we do not defend the gospel like we would when a couple, young couple quarrel, like I want to be the winner of this quarrel. It is to speak in a way so that I can win you over. Now, I was, uh, many years ago, I was on a short-term mission trip up northern Thailand in Chiang Rai. It was out in the mountains. There were a lot of villages. There's no electricity kind of village. Um, so there was this man who was a new Christian. He became a Christian in an animist um, village where they believe in all kinds of spirits. The tree has spirits. The objects have spirits. The stone has spirits. Spirits are everywhere, and they are afraid of spirits. So when this man became a Christian, the only Christian in his village, everyone wanted to kick him out of the village. 
Because now they're going to be afraid that the Spirit is going to be upset with us and, and, and it's all this man's fault. And that includes his own family, by the way. <laughs> Your village, you grew up there. So for this man, if he wants to defend the gospel, he's not going to be concerned about trying to win an argument. He wants to be concerned about a people that he loves who has turned their backs on him because they are afraid. It's not just one thing not to be afraid of these people, but he wants to show them that he's not afraid of the fear they have. And he would be addressing them if he were to defend the gospel to tell them that you don't have to be afraid of spirits anymore because there is one who is greater than the spirits. Now, if you're speaking to our family, imagine you are in a family that are not Christian. Maybe there are a lot of ancestral worshippers. You're the only man, the only son, only child, and you become a Christian, and your family gets really mad at you. What you really want to do isn't to argue with them that what I believe is right and you're wrong, but what you really want is to win your family. So you know their concern, and you probably would say that, you know what, I, Dad, Mom, I know you're concerned about filial piety, and, and the Bible is big about filial piety. It's big about filial piety. Even Jesus, when he was on the cross, about to die, his last few breaths, he made sure that his mom is taken care of by his most trusted one. John, this is your mother, and this is your son. And, 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 and as they talk about religion, he says, you know what, Christianity is also big about what happens after we die. I know there's this concern, isn't it, that um, if I become a Christian, no one's going to burn money, no one's going to burn stuff to me, and, and there's this codependence between the living and dead. But the Bible is big on that, and it is true. That's why God came down to the dead so that we can be the living. He came to die on the cross so that we can be saved from our sins. So, so we need to, as we speak to our loved ones, if we are in that situation, that we are not trying to win an argument, but we're trying to understand and help them to understand and win them um, because what their concerns are also our concerns, though we may see it differently. So let us seek to answer with gentleness and respect. Now, Peter continues in verse 16 that Christians are to keep a clear conscience. Now, there are many important reasons why we want to have a clear conscience. But if you are following the Bible there, you look at verse 16, it brings out one particular point about clear conscience. It is so that we can defend against malicious accusation and slander against the Christian or what we believe in. It is to dispel the accuser's hope to shame and slander the Christians. So there is another occasion where Paul, he was forced to defend himself, his faith, and it was his clear conscience that paved the way to dispel the accusations because that is also the way where he then declares the hope that he has, that there's going to be one resurrection, but one where there are two groups of people, one who will be saved and the other will face judgment. So look at Acts 24 verse 10 onwards with me. Let me read this to you. This is Paul. When the governor motion to him to speak. Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. And then Paul goes on, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive to always keep my conscience clear before God and man. So in a gentle and respectful manner, Paul's clear conscience testifies against the malicious slanders towards him and the gospel he has. And even while he was speaking to a human judge, he says, my conscience is clear, you can check it out, and my conscience is clear, not just before you, but before God, because there is still another judgment to come. And so he shared both um, his own faith and also his hope in the midst of this accusation. No, when we have clear conscience before God and man, ridicule or slander men on us will turn back on the slanderers. No, a, a refusal to gossip when you're in the office, a refusal to gossip and your willingness to respect people and speak kindly to people will be a big deal when someone in your group just start to slander Christians and those Christians, they're just bigots, no respect, they're intolerant and then they look at you and they say, maybe not this guy. Somehow they have to pause because they realize that as they make accusation, they can't find that in the group who have Christians that people know that this is not our experience of Christianity. Someone may even after they ask, hey, you seem like a really nice person. Why do, you, why do you really believe what you believe? Why do you say those stuff? Like, do you really believe that? And why? And suddenly you realize that they come and they want to hear your answer for the hope that you have in you. Let us keep a clear conscience. Now, the third attitude Peter spoke about was the readiness to suffer even for doing good. Now, this willingness to suffer for good can be so powerful that it testifies to others and that unbelievers may even come to believe in Jesus and save. Of course, we're not trying to volunteer to suffer for nothing, right? But when suffering comes, how we respond makes a big deal. How do you make the world pause and stop for a moment? It's not by shouting louder and louder because there are enough voices. You make the world pause when they suddenly see someone who is willing to suffer for good and is not grumbling and took it willingly because that is so counter-cultural. The world pauses. They may or may not agree with you, but they will pause when they see something that just don't look normal. Perhaps they consider Christians are insane or perhaps they think there is a truth there that the world refuses to see. So again, we see that in Paul's defense in another occasion, and this is from Acts 26, 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then a grouper said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And listen to Paul's reply. He says, Short time along, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am 
except for these chains that you guys have put on me. You see how amazing Paul's words are that he holds no bitterness in this suffering, but he says, I pray that you too, king, and everyone else, king of beggars, that you will come to recognize that there is a God. You know what happened in this story? King Agrippa, in the middle of this trial, he just stood out with the rest and said, we really should let this guy go if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. How amazing it is that it is the imprison that brings light to those who seem to be free. No, we may not land ourselves in prisons in our culture. We've got really good government. We have got a good place at the moment. But we might still experience certain ridicule or exclusion from certain circles. You might even have lost a promotion or opportunities just because you spoke up <laughs> at an occasion where you uh, it would be easier for you to just uh, keep quiet. That we spoke up just because we know our home as a Christian. But as these sufferings or uh, struggles comes along, you may be surprised unexpectedly that someone may just come and have that one occasion for a gospel conversation where someone may come and say, hey, Andrew, hey, hey, Sean, or whoever, why do you say those things? You didn't have to, you just keep quiet, and everything will be great. And now you lost your promotion, now you lost you know, your friends. And that is that one opportunity where you can answer their question, why are you a Christian? That's really that question, why do you speak up? So as we give our apologia, our apologetics, our defense, our answers, let us do so with gentleness and respect, verse 15, with clear conscience, verse 16, and also with a readiness to suffer. Now finally, how do we then answer or defend when people ask for the reason of hope? Now to have a good defense of our Christian hope, we also need to recognize we are actually also defending our Christian worldview. You need to recognize that when you're speaking to someone, you're very well speaking to them, your Christian worldview with someone with a very different worldview. Now you need to work hard with me for just this short moment on the topic of worldview because I've just given you a new word uh, called worldview. What is worldview? You know, it is the way that we view the world, right? Worldview, view the world. That's how we view the world. Uh, in the words of the apologist James Anderson, he says this. He says, worldview is like your belly button. Everyone has one, but no one talks about it. Or the cerebellum. Everyone has one, but not everyone knows they have one, yet it is so crucial in the aspect of our life. Now, don't Google search what is cerebellum if you don't know what is it, but it's just crucial to you and everyone has it. Not everyone knows that you have. You put it another way, worldview like it's a pair of glasses. You don't look at your glasses, you look through your glasses. So if you have sunglasses and I have purple lens glasses, we're going to have a hard time talking about paintings because we're going to argue because we look at things differently. So understand that as we defend and give answer, we also need to recognize someone else has a worldview that may be different from yours and we need to speak gently all the more with respect to help them to understand. When we answer and defend our hope, we need to know that we might be, or we are probably talking in a different worldview. When our worldview is shaped by the Bible, as a Christian, the Bible is the foundation we go to for every question in life. 
When you have the big questions in life, you go back to the Bible. The decisions we make, we go back to the Bible. The opinions we form, we struggle and we contend with it because sometimes we are struggling with worldviews and we want to accept what God says. The conclusion we draw at the end of our life, that is from scriptures. We process information using our worldview. If our friends have a different worldview, they will have their own assumptions, their questions, their decisions, their opinions, and their conclusion at the end can be very different from us. And how we respond to them and how they respond to us are shaped by worldviews. Imagine for a moment, let's say we are um, with a lady who has cancer, all right? And suddenly she recovers from stage four cancer. And her church who has been praying for her will be praising God and says, Hallelujah, God has done a miracle. Thanks be to God. Her atheist friend will say, Well, good on you. Maybe the doctor got it wrong in the first place. Maybe there was some medical thing that has happened that we just haven't figured out. In a hundred years now, you realize it is so obvious. Maybe not now, it's going to happen. But you know what? Good on you. Guess what has happened? We just have two worldviews striking at each other. So apologetics is where we make a defense for the hope in us while positively bringing two different worldviews and try to explain why scripture is still coherent and is still true and why Jesus still is the only hope. And as we engage with worldview, we see when we're a worldview, not all worldviews are the same. Some are more incoherent than others. But there's only one worldview that is coherent and consistent throughout. And it's true. Now, when Paul was with the Jews, he breached his defense using a common ground. The common ground was, with the Jews, law and prophets. And from there he says, I believe the same as you. But this is the interpretation, he got it wrong, and he hits right on that. At the end of the day, you have to realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of God. But when he was in Athens, which are all Gentiles, you go on law and they have no idea about the law. But he looks around, he realizes these people are religious. They believe in the divine. They have all kinds of gods everywhere. Even this little one, there's the God of unknown, just in case I miss out someone, you can stick your own name of the God you want. And Paul goes to them and says, you believe in divine? So do I. But let me tell you something you do not know. That while you are searching for the divine and reaching out to him, there is one, only one, who comes down and searches for you and has found you. If you use it in a modern day, like Paul is here, it might, it might sound different. It might, it might sound like this, that all the other religions tell you or call you to seek harder and find him. But Christianity tells you that God has come down to find you because you can't. Or if you are in GBHQ, invite your friends, says, God is like this. Imagine you are a father, now on second floor, and just now there's morning tea down there. God is not the God, the father who, who stands at the top of second floor and shouts at the toddler, Hey, try harder, try harder, come on, you can do it. Come on, don't roll down, don't break your head, come, keep trying. God is the one, the father who will run down the steps, skip the steps, run down to catch the little toddler, rub the, the wound that's there, kiss the wound at the level of the kid, and say, I'm here. Or Paul used it in the right way in our context. This is how he might have said if he's at GBHQ. Maybe not, but this is my shot at how Paul might have responded. So we need to recognize in our defense about the hope we have, we are to speak to someone else uh, with wisdom, recognizing that they may have a very different worldview 
But at the same time, we should explain our hope clearly according to the way that Bible says that our hope is historical. It is true. This is how Peter said in the second letter, 2 Peter 1.16, which we read just now in our uh, responsive reading. 2 Peter 1. Oh no, this is uh, the one that uh, was being read for us. 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is what Peter says in his other letter. He says, our hope is not one that is based on laboratory tests. It's not based on philosophies. It is based on God's promise in history from right from the beginning, and it is something that's fulfilled right in history when Jesus came, he lived, he really died, he was really buried, he was really rose from the dead. There were historical witnesses and he ascended. And so our hope is and certain that he will return for us because that is exactly how God said it. And that's exactly how he has been doing it historically. It's no philosophy, it's not theory, it is truth. That's why God comes to us. So as we share our answers and defend, we always go back to the Bible and always in the person of Jesus. As Paul says that, that the answer is reasonable, is historical, and is objectively true. And even after we've given our defense on the hope in us, there's this one thing that as Christians we do need to know. We need to recognize that at the end of the day, it is God's divine Holy Spirit who will convert someone and to become a Christian. Because you imagine what is really happening when you're defending and when I'm defending our hope and our faith. We are not just merely dealing with rational stuff and logic. What we are saying to the other man or woman is that this is to tell you, or the gospel is telling you, that the one sitting on the throne is no longer you, it should be God. And it is a worldview clash where that person must be willing to say, all right, I'm going to give this throne in my heart, in the center of my worldview, in my life, back to God. Jesus is going to sit there and I'm going to listen to him. When someone wants to become a Christian, it is not a mere intellectual argument, but it's a surrendering of the whole life. And so as we give our defense, because that's our duty and that's our responsibility, it is God's responsibility at the end for that person to come back to him. So we can give our defense, we can pray, and we trust the Holy Spirit to do His work. Because it's too big for us to change a person's worldview and to exchange the person who's sitting on the throne. But God can, and He has done to many of us. So our responsibility is to be ready to share the gospel of Jesus, because Scripture says faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. And we leave the conversion to the work of God's Spirit. May God help us, may the Lord help us to hear the question, even in the most unexpected circumstances, and be ready to be gentle, respectful, clear conscience, and even willing to suffer as we share and defend the hope that we have. Now back to the hospital with the elderly lady. I still didn't know her name. And she didn't know mine, but she had no trouble shouting at me because I was introduced as a pastor, a Christian. 
Now, it was a moment with a uh, hundred emotions for me because I was pretty embarrassed. Six old ladies staring at me. Five, only one of them were really kind. <laughs> my grandmother was on my right side. Everyone was just staring at me. What's happening? The, the visitors were like, what's the commotion? The nurses were like, what's up? What's this guy? No, increasing the blood, the, the, the heart rate, the blood pressure of this poor old lady. And I was there, like barely spoke anything. So, so that was pretty embarrassing. But at the same time, it was really heart-wrenching because if you see an, an old lady who is bedridden and screaming, it, it's quite heart-wrenching, it's quite painful, and that is not an event that happened recently. But it's enough to see a Christian and raise her blood pressure. So it was hard wrenching for me and I didn't really know what to do so I prayed for wisdom on how to respond. Now in the end, I still didn't know what's the best way to do but what I did was when she finished screaming, uh, I asked her, could I wash the apple on the table for you? Like no one's around in the moment. So I tried to wash the apple, try to cut the apple for her. It, was, it became calm for a while because it's a bit embarrassing to scold someone cutting a fruit for you. So she did calm down and we did have short conversation I tried to share as much as the gospel as she could handle and about that Christian lady cursing her because that's her worldview that she's cursing me to hell. I said, maybe for her, she's just concerned about you enough to say those things that people normally don't want to be talking about. Yeah, so there might be a clash in understanding what actually happened. And it's been years. I don't know what happened to the elderly lady. I pray that she will hear the gospel again in a better place. Uh, with a better person, but it reminded me the command Peter gave in today's passage. That we must always be ready uh, with the answer, but with gentleness and respect for them. So may the Lord help us to be more and more prepared each day. We may feel unprepared, but may the Lord help us to be a bit more prepared tomorrow and the day after and the day after. To make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us but yet do it with such gentleness and respect, with clear conscience and even the willingness to suffer. Because that's a pause for the world to see what's up. May the Lord help us. And so we close with the last verse from today's passage. And this is a great encouragement and reminder for us in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God... He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the reason why Christians would be willing to suffer for doing good and yet hold on to sharing the answers because that's what Christ did for us. That lands us back with God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Christ suffered for us so that we can come back to you. Father, help us in our journey in life to be prepared to give an answer for our hope even in the most unexpected circumstances. It could be a curious conversation. It could be a heated up um, accusation. But Father, grant us your spirit and wisdom to proclaim the good news and to give the answer and the defense for the hope that we have. And Father, we pray and trust in your Holy Spirit to do the work at your timing where one that we speak to may give up the throne in their hearts and give it to Jesus. 
All this we pray in the name of Jesus for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for sharing with us uh, what it means to defend the hope we have. Uh, Andrew has prepared two questions for us to reflect and to discuss. The first question is, how often do we consider or understand the worldviews of the people we talk to? Second question, how can we speak with gentleness and respect while remaining faithful to the gospel message? To allow uh, time for Holy Communion, uh, we will not be going into a breakout time. Please uh, take a picture of this, uh, these questions and uh, discuss over lunch or over the week. Uh, think about these questions. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.